This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Zach Fuss, and today we are breaking down Twitter, a business that needs a little introduction. Founded by Jack Dorsey in 2006, Twitter has become one of the most visited and influential platforms in the world. Yet, despite its rising social status, investors and users have been left frustrated by the company's pace of innovation and shareholder returns. To help me break down Twitter's business, I'm joined by anonymous professional investor, Compound248. Please enjoy this breakdown of Twitter. Compound, our first anonymous business breakdowns guest. Thank you for joining us today to break down Twitter. Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg famously equated Twitter's success with a clown car falling into a gold mine. I would think a nice place to start would be if you could help us with the history of Twitter and bring us forward to where we are today. So I think starting with where we are right now, Twitter, from my perspective, has the tow truck attached to the clown car and is spending money on real mining equipment. And it's beginning to get the gold mine operational. So for the first time in history, it's not just picking up nuggets on the ground, but actually trying to figure out how to mine in an optimal fashion. And really, that's enabled by the last four years where Jack was leading, attempting to get to this moment, which is a moment of opportunity. But to your point, narrative trails reality and narrative follows stock price. And so in that sense, narrative is backwards looking. So Twitter's history is relevant. Most people know the basic service, but the history is that it was founded out of a podcasting company called Odeo in 2006, which had been founded by Evan Williams and Noah Glass. But shortly after their founding, Apple launched its podcasting service, which really obviated the need for Odeo. And seeing that, they attempted a pivot. And one of their junior employees, Jack Dorsey, pitched an idea for this group messaging service that you could sign up for, which would become Twitter. And mind you, this is pre-iPhone. It's pre-group text. You had SMS texts, which were limited to 140 characters, one-to-one messaging. So this allowed for public subscription to be able to follow people as they sent texts out. And it allowed for kind of group and conversation. This idea was turned into a service. And Jack was named the original CEO. From that point forward, the leadership history is a completely sorted Games of Thrones-style war of egos and usurpations. There's actually been books written about it. Jack gets fired in 2008. He's replaced by Evan Williams, the Odeo founder. In 2009, Williams brings in his friend, Dick Costello, to be his number two as COO. And as a funny aside, Costello's very first tweet is, first full day, Twitter COO tomorrow. Task number one, undermine CEO, consolidate power. Well, it might have been a joke. It turned out to be prescient. And so in October 2010, Williams manages to get himself fired by the VCs and is replaced by Costello. And he's the CEO for the next five years, right? So he represents, quote, professional management. And this is really before the mythos of the founder-led company had really taken hold in Silicon Valley. Costello does fine, but they kind of lose their way. And in 2015, he's removed. And Jack manages to return in triumphant fashion as CEO again. And now, controversially, he's also CEO of a second large company that he founded called Square, now called Block. And so he's the CEO of two public companies at once. And when he took back over, it unquestionably was the clown car. Its service was powerful, but it was also rife with Twitter had high employee turnover, the platform had full of harassment and abuse. And it was mired by a horribly entangled tech stack, which we'll get to later. So platform health was terrible. And it actually began to lose users and had negative revenue growth in 2017. 
So while Jack would leave at the end of 2021, which we'll talk about, his last four years were unquestionably an organizational turnaround with four key focus areas, improving employee talent and morale, increasing the focus of of the team, cleaning up abuse and harassment on the platform, and completely rebuilding the tech stack. And as each of those improved, the business health itself began to improve and top line growth returned in 2018 and user growth really accelerated in 2019, which almost brings us to today. But as a brief aside, my own Twitter journey, my own personal user journey, I was a user of Twitter back in 2011, 2012. And for some reason that I can't recall, I went dark and I didn't log back in the service for probably eight years. And in the COVID spring of 2020, like millions of others, I came into Twitter and I just remember being shocked at the lack of innovation. The look and feel were almost completely unchanged during the eight years I was gone, other than two primary enhancements. One, they doubled the number of characters you could use from 140 to 280. And two, they changed the timeline from purely a chronological fire hose to an algorithmic timeline that allowed it to feel a little more relevant and custom. Those were two big external changes that when you combine with what Jack had done on the tech stack and the team had done, really set it up as much more prepared when the 2020 COVID bump arrived. And when those users came, Twitter was in a much better position to engage and retain them. And so we'll get to the tech stack, but in the last two years, With that tech stack rebuild, Twitter's pace of innovation has really accelerated dramatically. Platform health is at an all-time high. And so now today, even as the stock plums its steps and the lows, that's informing a negative narrative that is a little bit out of step with the operating health of the business. Right. And so from a user's perspective, What differentiates Twitter from the other social media platforms? Why is it that you think that users keep coming back despite all the issues we've talked about? When you go onto Twitter, you're not generally building your experience around your existing social graph of friends and families. If you love finance and investing, you go on Twitter and you can find Jim Chanos responding to Bill Ackman in public on tweets. And Bill Ackman just for some reason, decided to share that he owns a huge stake in Netflix. And when he shared it, he did it on Twitter. And then as you hunt around, you might find that there is a Twitter Spaces audio room where Jay-Z is talking with Twitter's founder, Jack Dorsey, about Tidal, the music service. And then you scroll around a little more and you discover that Elon Musk is trolling President Biden for giving subsidies to electric vehicle makers, but only if they have union employees. So news is made, but is also breaking on Twitter. And so when I step back and think about an interest network, it's that that type of thing is happening in the background. And then as you begin to engage more with the platform, you can become your own creator. So I now have a reasonable following. And if I ask a question like, what's the best business that has ever combined with a SPAC? I could easily expect to receive 45 different answers a few of which might open my eyes. And then later, someone might slide into my DMs and I discover it's a Chinese-American software developer who just happens to have nailed a US-listed Chinese fraud. So in this way, Twitter is really a network of people who you didn't really know before, but with whom you have overlapping interests. And so you begin to build a new social network around your interests. So it's a different kind of social network. It's an interest network. So that's a really helpful arc of, I call it the last 10 years of Twitter around its inception and its use case. But Twitter, from my understanding, obviously is a consumer product, but ultimately their revenue model is a combination of connecting consumers to businesses. I think it'd be helpful to contextualize what Twitter is today as a business. If we can take a look at the daily active users, the revenue numbers, the KPIs, what is it that drives the business model? And then the economic benefits of better serving advertisement, more engaged users, what that means for Twitter and its unit economics. At its very simplest, 
You've got people who come on the platform to pursue their interests and Twitter monetizes them through advertising, which is about 90% of revenue and is primarily to large corporates. And then you have Twitter reselling aggregated user data as an API-based SaaS product. So that's it. That's the business. People use the service, 90% of the revenue through advertising, primarily large brands, 10% high margin SaaS data provider. Going forward to drive value, in addition to operating more efficiently, which we'll get to, it really needs to drive three KPIs around revenue. One, the user base that's got to add net new logged in users. Two, it has to drive more engagement per user. So get users to use the service more and in a deeper way. And then three, drive revenue per unit of engagement, right? So for every hour you're on the service, how do we more effectively monetize that hour? So let's take those in order. One, the user base. To expand the user base, obviously, they've got to improve the onboarding process and make it increasingly frictionless. In the past, it was a heavy lift by the new user. And in the future, they need to do a better job of finding amazing content for you so that you don't have to do that lift. And that's really a machine learning challenge. In the past, you had to go find people, figure out how you were going to follow them. And going forward, they need to find those people and tweets and moments for you. And very clearly, they're working on this. And that connects directly to the second KPI, which was engagement per user. So once on the service, they need you to keep coming back more frequently and longer because you're getting more and more value out of the service. It's more deeply connected to your interests. They also, as part of that, need to provide you more and more connections so that you almost build new sets of relationships on the platform. So I think of this really from two perspectives. You've got the creator perspective and the user perspective. I was talking about users, but they also have to serve creators. Creators are who are putting amazing content onto the platform. So another way of framing what Twitter is, is not just an interest network, but it's actually a customer acquisition vehicle for creators. So one of Twitter's core jobs is to give creators the tools they need to engage with and attract their followers. And that to me really is the core flywheel of the business. That's the moat. It's a network effect between creators and users. The more high quality creators and creator content there is, the more users are going to want to use the platform. And then the more users that Twitter can deliver to the creators, the more creators are going to want to use the platform. So it's extremely hard to port those relationships off of Twitter, right? That's the moat. That's the defensibility. You can't port that off and recreate it elsewhere. They're not just in your phone's contact list so that when you log on to Facebook, it automatically knows everything about you. This is created inside Twitter's four walls and is heavily differentiated. And so Twitter needs to do a great job of making sure there's never any incentive for their creators to go elsewhere. And that comes down to giving them the tools they need. So we covered user growth was the first KPI, engagement per user, right? So we're talking about product development, friction removal, connecting users to content they love, content they can't find anywhere else, make it easy to make that content. And all of that brings us to the third, which is revenue per engagement. So to drive up revenue per engagement, what we're really talking about is better targeting, so using machine learning to better understand you and capture relevant signal that's timely, better targeting, better ads. So not just brand ads that look like display, but more down the funnel ads that ultimately get to purchase. So we want to see e-commerce on the platform and then better measurement. So if you transact on the platform, extremely measurable, very different than if you're exposed to a brand ad. And those drive revenue per engagement, targeting, ad quality, measurement. And those three, that's just executing on the platform as is, just doing a better job with what already is. But if we do number one and two, better targeting, better ads, then it also opens up to what I would consider major blue ocean opportunities for Twitter. The first is SMB. It's a huge opportunity. Twitter has 5% market share in large 
digital advertisements, large brands, but has less than 0.5% market share in SMB. It needs to get those more into balance. But to do that, they really have to serve the needs of the SMB. They have to make it very easy to use so that the SMB can self-serve and create their own advertising campaigns easily in the way they want, customized, targeted. And that also means they've got to offer more and more down funnel products because SMBs are much less about brand advertising and more transactional. So it needs to get to e-commerce. So we'll call that blue ocean number one. They're working on both of those fronts, making it easy to use and offering more relevant performance-oriented down funnel ad platforms. Blue ocean number two, subscriptions and payments. They have a couple different kinds of subscriptions. Subscriptions for creators, where I subscribe to follow a member of the media who I find compelling. That is honestly more of an engagement opportunity and less of an incremental margin opportunity. Twitter wants most of the revenue from that subscription to go to the creator. But there's also subscriptions for premium features on Twitter. And that high margin SaaS-like revenue, that could be more creator tools. It could be TweetDeck, which many people use. But that set of opportunities, very high margin, recurring revenue, and totally untapped today. And then the third part of subscriptions and payments would be payments, the ability to transact seamlessly inside the platform. So to sum up those three KPIs, we're really talking about getting more users on the platform, providing an environment that's highly relevant to them once they get on the platform so that they're deeply engaged. To do that, we need to serve creators by delivering them followers, which are really customers. That encourages the creators to constantly share more on the platform, which refreshes it and makes it more and more engaging for users. And then once we have that virtuous circle really going, improving the ad tech and targeting so that SMBs and large can onboard themselves and run campaigns seamlessly and with high ROI. And then ultimately, we've got to expand into new tangential blue ocean revenue opportunities. So very straightforward. And all five of those pieces really fit together and reinforce the others. If you think about the social relevance of Twitter relative to its economic standing today, you, know, you look at a business like Meta, Facebook, that I believe has over $100 billion in revenue, Twitter, about 5% the size of Facebook despite what I would say is almost equal cultural relevance, how do you reconcile the differences between the businesses like Facebook scale, Snapchat in its use cases, TikTok, which is now a challenger, quickly, rapidly taking share in, in social media? There's clearly a disconnect between the impact the business has relative to its economics. What is it that is explaining that? Let's just make that point really clearly. So Meta has, and this is actually just on the Facebook Blue platform, but close to 2 billion DAUs, daily active users. It's even more than that when you add in people who are using WhatsApp and using Instagram. Twitter, as I said, has 211 million users. So to your point, even though Twitter seems to have an incredible prominence in the zeitgeist of news and social relevancy, it's used at a fraction of the level of meta. And we don't exactly know TikTok's numbers, but I think it's safe to say that it's also, at this point, used less than TikTok is. The explanation for that, I think, is a few things. One, there is a real friction to turning Twitter into a useful service for you. Its history is that first time where I want to create an account, you'd log in. And the first thing it does is lay out a really unattractive, almost spreadsheet looking set of famous people who they're trying to convince you, do you want to follow Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell? Do you want to follow LeBron James or do you want to follow Shaquille O'Neal? And it begins asking questions like that. And that process, you can kind of understand why Twitter puts you through it. But A, there's a lot of friction in that process. And B, when you get to the other side of it, you really haven't found the micro interests that you are passionate about. And so in the past, I think that friction was very high from actually seeing a tweet 
to turning your home and timeline into a really relevant, customized platform. And so Twitter's opportunity is obviously to make that more algorithmic. Compare that to TikTok. The first time you sign into TikTok, all it does is show you an actual TikTok video. And if you like it, you swipe it and they show you the next one. And after three or four, they have a pretty good read on some of the things you're interested in. And at no point does it ask you to try to go actively figure out who to follow. And now you can do that on TikTok, but it begins with engaging content and then just learns about you through that. So Twitter obviously sees that. They're trying to figure out ways to do that for you. An example would be two years ago, they began rolling out a concept called Topics. So it could be that you are a passionate New York Giants fan. And so in the past, in order to create an interest graph around the New York Giants, you would have to manually go find a couple of the players who are active on it, maybe some of the news people who are active on it, maybe some of the fans who really are the leading voices on it. Well, today, there's a topic just called New York Giants. You click that and Twitter automatically begins feeding you content around the New York Giants. And of course, there's going to be topics around New York City. There's going to be topics around the NFL or football, which might encompass college football. So now Twitter is trying to use topics as a way to become much more narrow about who you are. Not only does that make it a more engaging service, it also helps solve another part of Twitter's big opportunity set, which is targeting. It's done a very poor job historically on delivering targeted advertising, right? So in that sense, it has been more like TV where the ads feel a little bit broadcast. So when you're watching a TV show, it doesn't feel like you're getting a custom ad network in the way it does when you're scrolling Instagram. Twitter has been closer to that TV experience than to Instagram. And obviously, that's a big part of their focus area today. And so when I step back and think about what is Twitter's opportunity set, it really is, we've got to remove friction from the onboarding process. They have to be able to do a better job of engaging you early on when you're there, understanding more nuance about what you're interested in, begin delivering that type of content to you, and then delivering ads that match with your interests and who you are. And that actually begins to open up ad inventory for them, both at the top of the funnel where you see a lot of brand advertising, but also if we call the top of the funnel, I'm just exposed to a Coca-Cola advertisement. And the bottom of the funnel is I'm actually clicking on an ad to make a purchase. Twitter is a very top of funnel skewed company and their opportunity. And really, if they want to unlock that SMB that we were talking about a few minutes ago, if they want to unlock that opportunity, they have to get to the bottom of the funnel. So with any digital advertising business, ultimately, to your point, there's brand advertising and there's direct response advertising. What you contextualize is top of funnel being brand and down the funnel, direct response. Ultimately, the monetization of your users is a function of attribution and conversion with which historically Twitter has been known to not do a fantastic job. And that translates, I imagine, into materially lower ARPU than its social media peers. How far behind are they? And how do you think about bridging the gap in the difference between that conversion that their peers have? You're exactly right. If we zoom all the way back up to the $600 billion global ex-China ad market, we would say, oh, that's a very mature market. We're talking about digital just taking share from traditional advertising. But that's actually not the case. That overall market is still growing at GDP+. And the reason is that digital is doing such a better job of attribution. And in particular, as you get down funnel, search is obviously one form of down funnel. It's very tied. Like if I say, I'm looking for new cars, it's very clear to the advertiser that I'm a high potential ROI on ad spend, which we can call ROAS, ROAS, return on advertising spend. Whereas when I'm watching TV, it's very unclear that I'm a high ROAS. Meta, Facebook has done an incredible job of driving attribution by moving down funnel. The further down the funnel you get, 
the more tightly the advertising dollar connects to the attribution. With the greatest example being, you showed me something that actually prompted me to buy it on the spot. I wasn't even looking for it. I didn't even know I wanted it. And it converted me into a sale. Extremely measurable. And what that's really done is say, hey, the potential TAM of advertising is actually about the incremental contribution margin that that sale generates. And so the tighter we can get the measurement and the targeting, the more we're going to be able to push that overall TAM. Now, coming to your question about Twitter versus Meta, let's put it into crystal clear numbers. In the US, Twitter has actually a more affluent, higher income, higher educated customer base on average than Meta. And of course, that's not actually a negative of Meta. It's because Meta effectively represents everybody, whereas Twitter is not everybody yet, and it skews to higher income. Despite that, Meta's US ARPU, and I'm adjusting this, they actually calculate their ARPU on a monthly average user basis. I've recalculated it based on daily active users. In Q3, Meta's was about $70 per US user, whereas Twitter is about $17.50. So per user, Meta is generating four times the revenue that Twitter is in the US. That ratio also exists in the rest of the world. It's a little harder to do comparisons because we don't exactly know the mix. A user in Japan is a higher ARPU user than a user in an emerging market economy. But we know that ratio still exists there. If you just look at the US, Twitter is doing one-fourth the revenue per user, and it has one-fifth as many users. And so that combination, of course, explains the overall revenue gap. There's no reason to believe that Twitter can't close that gap. And I guess, in theory, you could argue that Twitter could actually exceed that gap or exceed Meta. I would never even conceive of underwriting that, but I think it does show you the magnitude of the under monetization of the average Twitter user. And really, that is driven by a bunch of things, but the largest being Twitter is effectively null on performance advertising, and performance advertising is what SMBs require. So the small business is not going to do a big strategic takeover campaign of Twitter and pay to have a customized ad program. They want to be able to do self-serve, targeted, bottom-of-funnel ads that convert to very measurable revenue. And that is changing, but in the past, Twitter has had really no offering in that besides doing promoted tweets with very poor measurement. They've partnered with a number of companies over the last 18 months to improve that. And you're seeing actual real-time product innovations that we can talk about, but the reality is that is the unlock opportunity for Twitter. So if you've talked to any interested Twitter analyst or investor, the party line is typically they had all this technical debt that they needed to rebuild. I don't know that the general investment community and business analyst really understands what that means. What was it about their legacy system that had to be rebuilt? And where are we today in that evolution? So if you go back to when Jack joined in 2015, the tech stack, which think of that as the actual code and the way that interfaces with hardware, like servers and whatnot, but think of it most simply as the actual code that runs the service. In a modern tech company, the way that will be built is in a modularized process where different parts of the tech stack are represented in separate and distinct code bases that are used as effectively like plugins to create an aggregated tech stack. So these things come together like Lego blocks to create a bigger picture. When Jack got there, Twitter had a single giant tech stack. And so if you wanted to change something in the timeline, you were putting at risk the entire service to make that change. So you can imagine that the pace of innovation on that was going to be extremely slow because there was so much caution required to make any change because you couldn't quite predict if it was going to have some flow-through impact that brought the fail well. What they did over Jack's last three and a half years there was 
on the one hand, they have to keep running the existing tech stack as is, keep the service going, and then begin to pull out different parts of it. So there's the timeline. Another part could be search. Another part could be what's trending. Another part could be how the ads come together. Another part could be the onboarding process. All those things, you start to separate those each into their own distinct modules. And so you're running Twitter on the one hand, and you're literally rebuilding it on the other hand. And as you modularize it, you can start to create new variations on it. And you began to see in the service, in particular over the last two years, a lot of those show up. So I told you when I rejoined in 2020, effectively nothing had changed except the number of characters and the algorithmic timeline, both actually important changes, effectively the only changes. And in the last 18 months, we've seen more new products, I would argue, than in Twitter's entire history combined. So you've seen tipping, you've seen communities, which is to compete with Reddit and Discord and Facebook groups, super follows, which competes with Patreon. We've seen live shopping tested, recorded audio, live audio, subscription service, where Twitter is actually selling subscription packages, professional profiles, which is setting up down the funnel offerings later, and maybe LinkedIn type operations. They've begun to address friction in the login process. You can use Google and Apple IDs to do your login. Just last week, they launched NFT profile pictures. They rebuilt the visual app and went from... It's now an edge-to-edge image. In the past, it sort of had this clunky narrowing that would happen at times. Improved photo and video sharing. They've created a shopping module. So all these things, there's another half dozen to 10 that I could easily name. Almost all of those, by the way, are non-ad-based. So there's also been another eight or 10 products that have hit on the ad side. So we're seeing more innovation happening at Twitter than at any time in its past. And that is beginning to drive engagement. If you go back to 2016 and 2017... We have this company that came public in 2013 as a growth story. And in 2017, it posted negative revenue. In the context of a market where big tech and social and advertising are skyrocketing, Twitter is going backwards. By rebuilding the tech stack, by the second half of 2019, Twitter is growing again and actually accelerating its growth. COVID brought this one-time surge But even today, after that surge, Twitter is still growing users back in the double-digit rate. And so we're seeing ARPU grow and usage grow, which when you multiply those together is actually, for the first time in a long time, appears they have the opportunity to grow on a secular basis in the 20-plus percent top-line range. So in the backdrop of all this technical rehabilitation at the company... You also have some interesting dynamics with the shareholder base. So I believe it was in 2018 or 2019 that Elliot and Silverlake got involved. What were the implications of having an activist in the boardroom for what's still a relatively young founder-led business? And how did that manifest in the leadership change that was recently announced at the company? Let's first talk about Twitter went public in 2013, November of 2013. Its first trade post-IPO was at $45. Today, while you and I are talking, it's trading around $34. So in the eight and a half or eight and change years since Twitter went public, its share price is down. That is in the midst of, as I said, one of the most unbelievably attractive backdrops for exactly what this company represented itself to be when it came public. You can imagine there is investor frustration. And if you told me that a company eight plus years after it went public is down, I would tell you, well, clearly the fundamental performance has been horrible. If you look at Twitter since then, I don't know if you know this, Zach, but it's actually through the end of 2021 from 2013, it will have over seven and a half X revenue and had a 29% revenue caker over that time period. So the real story of the Twitter shareholder frustration emanates from that first trade, from the fact that when it first traded, it was trading at 40 times sales. 
And it closed 2013 at 60 times 2013 revenue. And maybe there's a lesson in there for some of the high-flying SaaS businesses of today, because a 29% CAGR was not even enough to break even from a revenue standpoint. Why wasn't that enough? In addition to the fact we've seen this massive derating, where this year, Twitter is likely to make $5 billion of revenue, and it has maybe a $26 billion enterprise value. So it's gone from trading at 40 to 60 times to five times revenue. It also has, I would say, an inefficient cost structure. And so in 2019, when Elliott arrived, and the stock, I think at the time, was in its 20s, you had six or seven years of incredible shareholder frustration. You had a company where, as I said, the product looked like it was doing nothing, and yet its cultural relevance seemed as high as ever. If you'll recall, that was when President Trump released basically all of his thoughts through Twitter. And Twitter became the center of the news universe, even more so than it had been. And I think what Elliot saw was, here's this company that really does seem exactly like what Mark Zuckerberg said, the clown car and the gold mine. And we think with professional oversight, we can turn this into something that looks more like a small Facebook. And so they came in, shook things up. And one of the first things that happened was the internal decision process around whether Jack is going to continue to be the CEO. Roll forward a few months and Silver Lake also comes in and Silver Lake comes in and injects cash through a secondary in a convert and bought shares. And as part of them coming in, they agreed that Jack would continue running the business. And that process of finalizing that took several months, but they ended up deciding, yes, Jack will run the business. And we saw the results, I think, of that activist involvement, which was at the beginning of this past year, 2021, Twitter laid out some very aggressive operating KPIs that they were going to try to achieve by the end of 2023. Keep in mind, at the time, Twitter had less than 200 million MDAUs, and they set out a KPI of ending 2023 with over 300 million MDAUs. 315 to be precise. So from today, another 100 million over the next eight quarters. And they said the year 2023 will generate seven and a half billion of revenue. Keep in mind that in 2020, they generated closer to below 4 billion of revenue. So it's a doubling of revenue. It's a 50% plus increase in users. And so they laid out these two major KPIs, and then they had sub-KPIs around seeing development efficiency in the number of revenue or user-generating products per employee doubling over that same time. So we're going to see a faster cadence of development, which is going to drive more users onto the platform, which is going to allow us to more efficiently monetize our users and get higher ARPU. So those three levers, all three of those are on track, as the company declares as of today. I believe, and I agree, that the market is extremely skeptical that they'll hit the user target. It's a very aggressive target and would require the company to grow basically at a record user pace every quarter for the next eight quarters in a row to hit it. And I think there's a lot of reason to be skeptical they will. However, we are seeing the up curve on the ARPU side. And we are seeing the up curve on the development side. So that's the backdrop for what I think the activists drove, which was they laid out an operating plan that everybody agreed to. If you can hit this, we will support you. Keep in mind, the last year and a half have been extremely trying for the leaders of these large social media companies being dragged in front of Congress, etc. Keep in mind that Jack is the CEO at the time. He was the CEO of two major companies, the other being Square, which he founded and owns a lot more of Square than Twitter and was being constantly berated for that. Coming back to this past November, out of nowhere, seemingly, Jack says he's leaving on a Monday, literally leaving that day. It's not, you know, I'm giving six months notice. It's I'm done today. And the new CEO is Parag Agrawal, who effectively no one in the world had ever heard of. 
And I think it hit like a lightning bolt of what is going on here. And what we've uncovered since then, I should also add that at the same time, they appointed Brett Taylor as the chairman of Twitter. And Brett is a very well-respected technologist and business person in Silicon Valley, who also happens to, on the day later, have been promoted to co-CEO of Salesforce, where he had been president. So it seems likely that Brett was given an opportunity to lead Twitter instead of becoming CEO of Twitter, became co-CEO of Salesforce and chairman of Twitter. Parag seems very clear that Jack handpicked him, ran that past the board over an extended period of time. The board got to know him and agreed, yes, Parag, who was the chief technology officer, is now going to be the CEO. My biggest question at that moment was, besides who is Parag, is will he be able to operate independently? Given the context of these activists in the background, what's going to happen? Can he really make decisions? In the first week, he restructured the leadership team very aggressively. And in doing so, basically put forth three people and assigned really clear accountability on the various KPIs we laid out to those people. So his right-hand people are a guy named Bruce Falk, who's in charge of monetization, and a guy named Kayvon Bekpour, who is in charge of the actual product. And so Kayvon's job is to drive users and drive development cadence. Bruce's job is to drive ARPU and to drive ad development cadence. And the third person, more of an external facing person. And then you have Ned Siegel, who's the CFO. And so that new executive suite is empowered and accountable. I think what we'll see is if they can't hit their targets, we'll find an owner who does. And that seems to me to be the latent threat of Elliot and Silver Lake in the background is, all right, if you guys can't do this, we suspect there are owners who can do it. We will catalyze a sale. I think that's kind of a working hypothesis that the market assumes right now. Yeah, I know that years ago, Disney took a deep look. I believe they had an agreement to acquire the company and then walked away at the last hour. And I'll entertain your bullish bias in Brett Taylor's appointment, given the fact that Salesforce has looked at the business in the past for acquisition. So maybe this is a nice segue into capital allocation. We don't typically spend a ton of time talking about the subject, but the reality is in a technology-focused business, reinvestment tends to be the largest cost. And Twitter has been maligned for their reinvestment in the business, not realizing a sufficient ROI, which has manifested an increasing share count. How do investment analysts look at the ROI of the spend and where's the money going at Twitter? Well, let's set aside the share leakage for a moment. The leakage is very frustrating. It's not clear that the management team really understands exactly what share issuance costs, but we do. So I'm just going to assume that that's really a cash cost. To think about ROI, it's obviously straightforward. We've got the return and we've got the investment. And so we need to figure out what are the building blocks that go into that. So let's start with the fact Twitter has a 65% gross margin. So the subscription products would be a little higher. The ad products may be a little bit lower, but let's just assume that 65% going forward. And today we know Twitter is spending for growth. So we're going to have to make some assumptions about how that spend breaks out between what they would need to spend to maintain their existing revenue base and platform and what they're spending for growth. So Twitter today is guiding to effectively 25% MDAU growth for each of the next two years. MDAU is a little bit of a funny KPI because it involves both actual new users and more engagement from existing users. So I'm going to separate those out a little bit. Let's just say we can get 10% more users on the platform per year. We're getting existing and new users to use the platform 5% more often. And we're getting 5% more revenue per unit of engagement. So that's a pretty simple math equation. Today, we have 211 million users as of the end of Q3. 10% more, that would be 21 million new users. The two 5%, 5% more engagement, 5% more revenue per engagement. Let's call that a 10% increase in ARPU. So I think it's Twitter's ARPU 
is probably around $6 per quarter. So that's $24 a year. If it's 10% higher, that's $660 per quarter, which is $2640 per year. So on those 21 million new users, we'd be getting $2640 of ARPU. But we'd also be getting that extra 240 of ARPU on the entire existing user base of 211 million. So those are all the pieces we're going to need to calculate the return side. We'll come back to that in a second. Now we need to think about the cost side. In 2021, Twitter is going to spend about $2.5 billion on OPEX, which is almost 50% of revenue. It's a huge key open question as to what portion of that 50% is required to stay flat that we could think of as maintenance OPEX. But let's just say if we thought Twitter really wanted to go for margins with no growth, they could generate 35% EBIT margins. And that ties out to Meta's OPEX structure. And Meta, mind you, is investing aggressively for growth. So 30 points of OPEX is maintenance and 20 points is growth. We said 50% of revenue is OPEX. We're going to use 30% for maintenance, 20% for growth, which is 60-40. That means that 65% gross margins, if we are investing 30 points for maintenance, that's going to leave us with 35% incremental EBIT margins that we can use for our equation. So here's the math. 21 million new users at 2640 of ARPU, plus 211 million existing users at an incremental 240 of ARPU is going to get you 1.1 billion of revenue growth. That's just over 20%, which is pretty much in line with what the company is guiding to. We said we can get 35% incremental EBIT margins on that. So the 1.1 billion at 35% is just under 400 million of incremental normalized EBIT. Now you pick a multiple, but if we think the business could be worth 15 to 20 times EBIT, then that incremental almost 400 million, we're talking about, call it six to seven and a half billion of incremental value per year. And so Twitter should be able to drive that scale of improvement on a regular basis year after year. And if, as we said, 60% of that OPEX was for maintenance, then that means 40% of OPEX is for growth. How much are they spending to get that? Well, it's spending a billion dollars to create six to seven and a half billion of value per year. And today, Twitter has a $26, $27 billion enterprise value. So we're talking about 25% value accretion annually from here with no multiple expansion. So that's the type of math that has made Meta a monster. But Twitter hasn't been a monster, at least not, not in the good sense. Twitter's challenge has been in the past that its growth OPEX was really spent on catching the platform back up to a healthy state. They had to go back in time and invest in A, improving platform health, and B, improving the platform's tech stack. And that excess spend, therefore, was not for growth, but really to rebuild the existing business so that it can grow going forward. So the bet on Twitter today is that it's no longer investing just to tread water, but that it can actually unlock strong secular growth where the business is able to achieve that ROI for years and years going forward. Essentially, Twitter's success is a function of the number of users, how engaged those users are, and the adjacent opportunity on attribution and advertising. You mentioned briefly some efforts to innovate around new use cases. The creator economy was in vogue in 2020, 2021. We've since transitioned thematically into the metaverse, but clearly it's going to be a relevant portion of any social media business. How do you think about the opportunities set for Twitter and how management ranks them in terms of where they're spending their time? So I think we have today's two major revenue sources. One, obviously, advertising, 90% of the business. We have enterprise data sales, which is 10% of the business. And then I think we can envision a future where there's a third major revenue stream that is subscription margin. There's two kinds of subscriptions that Twitter is testing right now. One is called super follows. And that really is the creator economy. It's I follow Zach on Twitter, Zach wants to build 
a newsletter and valued tweet and engagement business. And so I want to pay Zach to be a part of a small coterie who get private access to him. That's what Superfollows is. Even if Twitter generates a lot of, quote, revenue off of that, their express intention is to drive that revenue to you. And most of it's going to be split between you and between the app store or something like that. So I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about that as a revenue or a profit source. That to me is really more about driving engagement and keeping it on platform. However, they're also experimenting with another subscription service called Twitter Blue. And that actually is a subscription to premium Twitter tools, which today gets you a handful of sites that are offering ad-free articles. It gets you the ability to undo tweets before they send. It gives you the ability to show a special NFT profile and do some other customized things. Those are effectively 100% margin products. So that actually is a huge opportunity for Twitter. So in the future, I think we can see the Twitter blue concept turn into a tiered product where you get increasing set of tools for paying more money, right? So you could imagine you end up getting premium audio editing tools for recordings or premium access to tweet drafting tools, et cetera. And those are very high margin. So I'll come back to the economics of that in one moment. And then on the other hand, you have TweetDeck, which if you haven't used it, used to be a third-party app, which was acquired by Twitter. It is effectively like the power user tool for people who spend their day on Twitter. We actually don't know how many people use it today, but it's free. And it has not been overhauled effectively in eight years. And they're going to roll out an overhaul and have made very strong hints that they're going to charge for it. And I believe that there's a couple million people who use it. And if they charge for it, I don't think it'll be in the $3.99 or $5.99 range. I think we will be talking about hundreds of dollars per year, potentially more. Could you have half a million users of that paying $500 a year? I think you could, which would be easy math. That's $250 million of very high margin revenue. And then if we look at their MDAU base of let's say in a few years, 300 million MDAUs. Can Twitter penetrate 1% of those with a $5 a month on Twitter subscription platform? Let's just talk about $5 as their contribution margin. So that would be 3 million users at $5 a month. That's $15 million a month times 12 months. That's $180 million of margin there. So through just those two products... Could you get to a four to five hundred million dollar very high contribution margin subscription business? I think you can. I think that could easily trade at something like 20 times that profit level, which is call it 10 billion dollars of value to Twitter. In the context of today, it has a 20 to 30 billion dollar enterprise value in a business that truly does not exist today. You could have 40% of that covered from just those two products. And so those are obviously huge blue ocean opportunities. And then again, you know, on the ad side, the SMB moving down the funnel into more measurable, targeted, performance-driven advertisements, that is a complete blue ocean as well. The only product they have today that is really a performance-oriented product is for app downloads. So HBO can advertise to you to download the HBO Max app right now on the service. But if I want to buy a t-shirt, that really doesn't live on the service yet. So I think we'll see a lot of expansion into that revenue line as well. So today, Twitter is a 15-year-old business that has had its ups and downs. I think amongst investors, people are excited about a potential inflection point. Our customary question is to ask, a lesson that could be learned from both operators and investors in studying a business. But I think that what's more interesting about Twitter is really its history that's brought to where it is today as a business and what that's meant for both the operators of actual Twitter, as well as investors who, to your point, have seen an equity per share value that's gone nothing since an IPO. So in the context of your studies of the business, what is it that 
operators can learn in taking a business like Twitter public and managing shareholder expectations to yield a result that everyone's happy with. And as an investor, what are the potential lessons learned that would have avoided investing in something that's effectively been alpha destructive since its IPO? I would say even more than alpha destructive, it's been negative returns in one of the great bull markets of all time. So a lot of lessons, but if I were to try to come up with a few core ones. On the operating side, Amazon used to promote the concept that for every 10% faster we can get pages to load, we're able to drive sales 10%. So if you think of that in a different way, what that really meant was when we reduce friction, we drive usage. And Twitter has done, I think, a very bad job over time of taking friction out of the system. And not only that, their users put a lot of friction into the system through what I'll call negative experiences of harassment and politicization of everything. The last three years have been Twitter focusing a lot on removing friction from the process, removing friction from onboarding, removing friction from making it an engaging experience, and removing the friction of other users so that the health and safety of the environment are much higher. And we've seen the usage response. So I think there's a very clear lesson around friction reduction drives usage, drives engagement. So that's one. Two is... It's not at all obvious to me that maximizing your IPO valuation is positive for the long-term health of a company. Obviously, you're not trying to sell shares at a discount either. But when the expectations implied by your price are dramatically out of whack with the ability to execute, you are planting the seeds today for discontent tomorrow. Twitter has had to go from being the highest flying business in the US to being the butt of everybody's jokes and having generated no returns over the better part of a decade. It's not obvious to me what management should do differently. But if I were to extract that as a lesson for investors, I think it's very clear that if you do not understand the expectations that are implicit in your purchase price, you're sort of asking for trouble down the road. And as I said, Twitter, in many ways, has actually performed. They've almost 8x their revenue since IPO, but even that's not enough. And then I think the last lesson is, if I look at Twitter today, having a balanced relationship between the way you treat your owners and the way you treat other stakeholders, call it your employees and your users, is incredibly important. I think Twitter has had a very unhealthy relationship with its owners over time, and at times, an unhealthy relationship with its users. When you don't have a healthy relationship with your users, you obviously risk entering a negative cycle, which luckily they were able to stem in 2017. But when you don't have a healthy relationship with your owners, what ends up happening is time horizons shorten. What Twitter risks today and what other operators should be careful of is when your time horizon shorten, your ability to actually make strategic, long-term value-creating decisions, that shrinks with it. And so Twitter today has, I'd say, two years to execute on its current plan. That's a reasonably long time. I think they're very fortunate in some way to have activists involved who have backed them, but it's not forever. I think it took a lot of work for them to even be able to buy that two years And if I were them, I would be extremely cautious about doing things that don't serve my owners. If they are to mistakenly shorten their time horizon any further, their opportunity to execute could be cut short. They end up having this sort of Damocles hanging over their head that I think is very dangerous. Compound, thank you for joining us. You're one of my favorite follows. Beyond that, the way that you're now leveraging the Twitter platform to essentially share your beliefs and understandings and the potential of the business are fascinating to watch. And I encourage all of our listeners to uh, follow your journey and engagement with the company. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I think we talked in a very direct way around the challenges of the business. I think the business also has tons of opportunity in front of it 
from driving new users onto the platform, deepening its relationship with its existing users, and providing them tools that allow them to enjoy the experience more, and in doing so, learning more about them so that the targeting and advertising can constantly improve. And if they do that, I think Twitter has a decade of potential compounding in front of it. But if they don't, it could be cut quite short. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 